Good morning. It's great to be here. So, hi to everyone um, in the uh, Zendo at MZMC. Um, hi to everyone who is on Zoom. It's good to see you. We're coming to you from uh, Hokyoji. <clears throat> Excuse me. A uh, retreat center in the uh, very southeastern uh, tip of Minnesota. And we're here on a retreat, a five-day retreat, and this is our last day. And uh, we have probably, I think, about 22, 23 people down here. And let's see if everything's okay here. A couple of things happened on my screen, but it looks like Everything's still okay. So, uh, it's so quiet down here. It's so quiet. Um, okay, please hold questions <laughs> until later. Um, it's, uh, it's so quiet here. I was sitting um, outside uh, behind the dining hall where a lot of us spend time when we have our little breaks, uh, really early drinking coffee um, before anyone else was up, I think, except, of course, the Tenzo who gets up very early. And all I could hear were the insects. <clears throat> so it's not completely true that it's quiet here because there are always uh insects. Um, let's not do any more chat until the end of the, uh, until the talk's over. Okay, that's a little distracting. Um, so it's so quiet here. <laughs> not really, because we have uh, the insects all the time. Um, and uh, we have, uh, we have the whippoorwills and various other creatures. Um, but what I mean really is that uh, we don't really have many sounds of civilization. Uh, in the daytime, you might hear the clang of the uh, uh, pots and pans in the kitchen, or you might hear the han, or you might hear a meditation bell, uh, little sounds like that. Uh, but mostly it's just the sounds of nature. Occasionally we'll hear a train uh, down in uh, New Alban, about three or four miles away on the Mississippi River. And um, that's a nice sound. It's kind of a it's kind of an inviting sound. It always kind of kind of makes you want to come along when you hear when you hear a train. Um, and sometimes we hear uh, the sound of a car passing on the gravel road. We're in the valley of Winnebago Creek here, and there's a gravel road that follows it all the way up, maybe twenty miles or so. And so we hear that sound, that kind of, you know, crunching sound that car tires make on a gravel road. And I realize that that's a very um, comforting kind of sound. Uh, and there's a connection I never really made until this retreat about uh, gravel roads. Uh, when I was a child, um, <clears throat> our farm was on a... Uh, a highway, you know, a blacktop highway. And there was a little entrance into our farm, which was on a 
gravel road, uh, even less than even a block's uh, distance. And past our place, the gravel road turned into a dirt road. So if we ever heard the sound of tires on a gravel road, it almost certainly meant that someone's coming. Someone's coming to our place. And a farm can be a great place uh, to grow up, uh, a great place to wander around. But it can get kind of lonely. You can go two, three days without having a visitor. So it was always exciting when somebody was coming. And the three of us boys would always come running from wherever we were and uh, see who it was. And usually it was someone nice. Usually it was someone entertaining. Occasionally it would be my great uncle Art who would come in his uh, Nash, which is a car they don't make anymore. And I would think, oh boy, he's going to sit here for four hours and talk. And it's not very interesting. Uh, but I really love the old guy and I, I, I treasure my memories of him. But with the exception of Uncle Art, great Uncle Art, I think it was always just pretty, pretty nice, pretty, uh, pretty comforting. And um, there's a lot that's comforting here at uh, Hokioji. You know, there's uh, familiarity for some of us who have been coming here for a long time seeing the same old uh, weathered uh, boards on the railing of the Zendo. They haven't all been replaced. And um, seeing the trees that have been here for years and years, seeing how they grow. There are trees here 30, 40 feet tall that I can remember uh, when they were planted. Uh, and it's just really lovely to be able to get in touch with a place over decades like that and see how it changes. That's very uh, comforting. It's comforting to know that the care, about the care this place has received by, uh, by uh, Dokai and other people who are living here, uh, people who have been caring for this place for about 50 years now. But the biggest comfort of all, I think, is being here with uh, my fellow practitioners. Um, the way people hold doors open for each other the way people are so kind to each other, but also just you might meet someone on the path and there's no visible sign that you've interacted, but there's still this comforting presence because they're holding the container. They're doing their practice so that you can do uh, your practice. So uh, there's nothing extra there and it's really supportive and it's really comforting. So you might wonder, why am I talking so much about comfort here? This is a retreat, right? I should be getting really tough and saying, come on, you got to practice harder. You got to sit straighter. Uh, you got to do this. You got to do that. Um, well, yeah. Yeah. And there is quite a contrast, I think, between the kind of comfort I'm talking about and the kind of thing we might feel when we're sitting on our cushion. Because sitting this much for five days is really hard, and you have to bring uh, some discipline to it. And our practice is to face fearlessly uh, whatever comes up. Or if we're not ready to face it fearlessly, to uh, quiet ourselves and gather strength. But we are here to face it all. Impermanence, emptiness, interconnection, our place in the cosmos, regret uh, all of it, all of that uh, soup that makes us human. 
So sometimes I see this in people quite often, actually, we try so hard. Um, we such, we put such a fierce effort into facing all of these things that we begin to be really uh, suspect about the part of ourselves that seeks comfort. And we see that as an impediment. And we think it won't let us do the work that we need to do. And that we have to deny that part of ourself and maybe even annihilate it. But I think it's better to accept that part of ourselves and even uh, value it. That part of ourselves knows what we need to do to take care of ourselves in order to free all beings. We may be connected with all things. We may not really exist as individuals, but at the same time, we do exist as individuals and we have these uh, bodies and that's how things work. The universe expresses itself in individuality and that's how it should be. And our job is not to deny the individuality of this being, uh, but to allow the universal to express itself through this being. So we honor all parts of the being and we work with them. And on retreat, we see what comforts us and we see our need uh, for comfort. Sometimes that can be kind of, kind of stark. We see how uh, insistent we are about need, how much we are governed by it. But we don't reject that part of ourself that seeks comfort. We do see how it can be an impediment to our practice and we keep it in its place. We don't let it run amok, that's all. We ask it to step back because we're concentrating on the universal right now. But we know it's there. We can smile at it when it shows up and we can accept our humanity because we're never going to uh, escape our humanity. Uh, the idea that something will happen to us, we'll have an experience and in an instant our life will change forever and we'll never have needs again is just wrong. That needful part of the self, maybe, it, it could go away completely for a while. It's been known to happen, completely disappear, but it always comes back. It always comes back. No one is free of that small, needful self. And they wouldn't want to be. So you may change and you may have a new relationship with your needful self, but it's not going to go away. So what you want is the universe working through this body and mind, this imperfect body and mind, you can't avoid your imperfection either. You can't avoid your place in the universe. Uh, as one, one person said to me uh, during this uh, retreat, I can't avoid hurting people and I can't avoid being hurt by people. 
That's kind of a painful realization, but it's true. We can't avoid our place in the interconnected web of life. So practice is not about achieving perfection. It's about accepting and working with our imperfection. But you can accept this reality, the fact that you can't avoid hurting people and you can't avoid being hurt by people, and still do your very, very best not to hurt people and not to be hurt by people. You've just eliminated the extra, which is the denial of the reality of your place in the universe. And that works on the cushion as well. You can accept fully with love and forgive forgiveness that you're a needful person and still do your very best not to let that neediness run the show mm -hmm. or run amok. You can keep it in its place and you can welcome it and you can love it. And I feel like we need to hear this. <clears throat> I keep returning to themes like this again and again. Um, If you're new, maybe you just sort of need to hear all about the discipline part. But if you've been at this for a while, you may be pretty good at seeing the mindful self, I mean the needful self, seeing the needful self and admonishing it. But we can go too far. And if we're overzealous, uh, the needful self becomes our enemy. And then we're at war with ourselves. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there are old messages that bring shame and guilt, and that can compound the situation. So what we're not so good at sometimes is accepting and caring for that small uh, deluded self. I have a little quote here from Reverend uh, Shohaku Okamura. I've been quoting him a lot lately. This is just... Uh, one sentence from his uh, commentary on the mountains and waters uh, sutra. He says, when we see delusion as delusion, we are not deceived by delusions. Then they cease to be delusions and we can even enjoy them. Well, we can enjoy our delusions. We can. When we see delusion as delusion, we are not deceived by delusions. Then they cease to be delusions and we could even enjoy them. So um, <clears throat> I'd like to talk about this a little more uh, in terms of uh, refuge. And for some of you at the retreat, there's going to be a little repetition here, but I think that's okay. Uh, I've really um, enjoyed Pema Chodron's approach to refuge, where she talks about there are two kinds of refuge. You know, there's, I take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, but there are many ways we can take refuge. We take refuge in comforting things. And she talks about refuge in the conventional sense, which is I, needy Ted, uh, need something that's going to make me feel better, something that uh, comforts me. Um, and there's also the unconventional kind of refuge, which is much, uh, much deeper, you might say, and that is the refuge of being ready to leave the nest, as she says, 
being ready to go out there and uh, do anything that is needed and accept the fact that there really is no ultimate refuge. There is no place to land. That conventional refuge can make you feel better for a while, but it's not going to last. Uh, ultimately, there is no place to stand. And so accepting that there is no place to stand and being comfortable with that, being completely sort of uh, free in the universe is the way to find that deeper refuge. It's the refuge of no refuge. If you're not looking for and needing refuge, you are okay. So um, this week at the retreat, Ben and I have been lecturing on some uh, Chinese uh, poets. Uh, I've been uh, lecturing on Xingang, who was born in China in 1597. And Ben has been uh, lecturing on Yiqui, her uh, disciple. And I'm going to read a short poem here by Xingang, uh, uh, which I think is on your program if you're at MZMC, probably. And um, I, I read it here earlier in the retreat, but that's okay. It's a four-line poem, The Meditation Cushion. A single meditation cushion, and one is completely protected. Earth may crumble, heaven collapse, but here one is at peace. Sacred titles and worldly fame both fade away in the sitting. And a great chiliacosm assembles on the tip of a feather. So she starts out saying a single meditation cushion and one is completely protected. I take this as being the conventional sort of refuge. I, Ted, small needful Ted, am protected when I'm on my meditation cushion. Earth may crumble, heaven collapse, but I'm going to be okay. Here I'm at peace. Sacred titles and worldly fame both fade away in the sitting. Now we're moving toward that unconventional type of refuge. And in the end, she says, and a great chiliocosm assembles on the tip of a feather. So a chiliocosm is a collection of worlds. So on the tip of a feather, we have this great collection of worlds. And that's really a big mind sort of refuge. So she moves very nicely in that poem from the individual refuge uh, to the universal uh, refuge. And I think... Uh, it appears that she's really comfortable with both sides there. They fit together nicely. The meditation cushion brings them together. This is where big and small self are okay with each other. So what do long, long-term practitioners do with their needful self? that self that's still caught up in the messy world of form, that self that can't escape uh, complicity, that self that can't escape its own karma and society's collective karma. Well, I think that they find that the small needful self is also Buddha. So I'm going to read another poem by Xing Gang that I think demonstrates this. But first, I'd like to talk a little bit about her life, because I haven't really done that yet. Uh, ben talked about Yi Kui's life a little bit and how he really knew some uh, hardship. Uh, Xing Gang did too. 
She was born in 1597, uh, the only child of a scholar, probably in well-to-do circumstances, and she was a very capable child. Um, and she showed an inclination very early for uh, spiritual life. And when she became an adolescent, she told her parents that she did not want to get married. And they said, too bad you're getting married anyway. And they set up a, a marriage for her. Uh, and at 18, she found herself engaged to a young, a young licentiate. And <clears throat> while they were engaged, uh, he died. So they never got married. But the custom of the time was she went to live with her fiance's family. And she faithfully served them for a long time. But she still wanted her formal religious training. And finally, at the age of 25, um, so seven years after she came to live with his family, um, she uh, gave up eating and drinking in order to get them to relent and let her study Buddhism. So that's pretty, pretty extreme. And then uh, she started, they relented and she started training at a nearby temple while living at home. And then both of her parents died and it wasn't until the age of 34 when both of her parents were gone that she could move to a temple and become ordained. So that was quite a long, uh, quite a long wait, uh, 16 years from the time of her engagement. And it sounds like her training was pretty tough. It was with Master Tong Shang, and he had his first meeting with her, and he assigned her the koan. What was your original face before your father and mother were born? Uh, which is a which is a wonderful koan. She worked on that for an entire year, and then she had her second meeting with Tong Shan. Mm -hmm. She showed up, and she gave some response, and he said, "That's no good." And she was really uh, uh, torn up by that. Uh, she gave herself seven days to achieve enlightenment. I don't know whether that happened, but I do know that it really damaged her her health. And, <clears throat> excuse me, subsequently, she entered into nearly a decade of solitary meditation, no small thing. And eventually, she was invited to be abbess of a Crouching Lion Convent. And uh, some people doubted she could do it, but she uh, proved to be a very eloquent person and a very capable person, charismatic. She had many, many followers. And she provided through her temple uh, food and medical care and shelter uh, to anyone who asked for it. And they actually added buildings to the temple complex so they could shelter more people. So she was uh, strong, she was capable, she was really determined, uh, and she knew the joys of Dharma, knew the joys of uh, Sangha. Uh, still, uh, she had a hard life. There were all of those years where she was not able to do what she felt she should uh, be doing. And so she must have carried around a lot of hurt and a lot of weariness, I would think. And she must have had her own needs. And uh, what what did she do with them? I'm sure even after she became abbess, and you can tell from her poems, she still had these own personal needs. 
So the poem I'm going to read, uh, one more poem by her is called Behind Closed Doors. And first I'm going to read uh, the entire poem and then I'll go through and um, comment on it a little bit. <clears throat> Behind Closed Doors. After teaching and preaching, running about for so many years, now I've shut my door and retired to the hidden forest spring. Having kicked open heaven and earth, I can now rest my feet. Alone I sit before the winter window, the shimmering moon full. Spending the day in a foolish way, no need for any method. Here within there is neither existence nor non-existence. Straight and tall I sit, cutting off the path of sage and fool. Since time immemorial to the present day, it has been so. I'm just going to read it in its entirety again. You can hear a, a good poem several times, right? Mm -hmm. Behind closed doors, after teaching and preaching, running about for so many years, now I've shut my door and retired to the hidden forest spring. Having kicked open heaven and earth, I can now rest my feet. Alone I sit before the winter window, the shimmering moon full. Spending the day in a foolish way, no need for any method. Here within, there is neither existence nor non-existence. Straight and tall, I sit, cutting off the path of sage and fool. Since time immemorial to the present day, it has always been so. So <clears throat> the title, Behind Closed Doors, I think suggests a, a protected place. Uh, where you keep your distractions and responsibilities away. Uh, it reminds me of the first poem of hers I read uh, earlier in the retreat, where she uh, wrote a poem in a retreat about kind of why she was leaving the retreat for a while. And she went to her own place and she closed the brushwood gate and enjoyed her solitary practice there. So I think... This is probably about uh, refuge in a conventional sense, to get away and spend some alone time. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably the dream of every uh, really busy parent, uh, mm -hmm. and in this case of a very busy abbess, to just get some time alone. And she's doing that. So what does she say from this place of conventional refuge? She says, after teaching and preaching, running about for so many years. So, yeah, teaching and preaching is great. It is a wonderful life. Hard to think of a better life. But still, it can feel sometimes like running about. And I'm sure that she, you know, she had the 17th century equivalent of uh, email to answer all day. And they were piling up. And she had all of those meetings. She had to raise money for the temple, all of that stuff. So she's running about. Now I've shut my door and retired to the hidden forest spring, the hidden forest spring, the source, the source of uh, energy and refreshment. Her tired old body needs that. Having kicked open heaven and earth, I can now rest my feet. 
I think there's no way you can read that line that it isn't pretty funny. <laughs> Having kicked open heaven and earth, I can now rest my feet. Because kicking open heaven and earth, that's like leaving the needful self behind, right? That's how you do that. You know, you you uh, you leave your desires behind, you kick open heaven and earth, you merge into the universe, you're gone. But this is like small, small self's perspective on that. It's like, I did it, okay? I went through those hardships. I did the 10 years of solitary sitting. I worked on that colon for a year only to get uh, rejected. I solved the problem of life and death. I annihilated <laughs> myself for a time. And uh, now I'm back and I'm tired, okay? <laughs> and yeah, uh, you would think, you know, maybe small self would stop complaining by this time, but there it is. And I think the way she presents this uh, with uh, some humor shows that she's uh, she's uh, comfortable with uh, the whole situation. She kicked open heaven and earth. She found total refuge. And now she needs some conventional care as well. And then the first of the, the first verse ends with, alone I sit before the winter window, the shimmering moon full. That is a nice sound, doesn't it? Nice rhythm. Alone I sit before the winter window, the shimmering moon full. So you can just feel that she's finally gone to her uh, retreat place. She's put up her feet and you can just feel kind of the, this huge sigh. Ah, oh. ah. Oh. And the self can kind of melt away. That needful self can kind of melt away. We have winter which is stark, no human emotions here. We have the shimmering moon, a symbol of enlightenment. So this is non-conventional refuge, complete peace because there's no desire. So we started out with conventional refuge and merged into the non-conventional kind of refuge. So we're at peace. And I think things are in balance at the end of this first verse. So the second verse is going to be about what does this balance look like? Spending the day in a foolish way, no need for any method. I really like that line. I think um, uh, Beata Grant is a really good translator because a lot of times the words do the thing they're talking about. Spending the day in a foolish way. That's kind of a foolish rhyme, right? <laughs> Uh, it's playful. It's playful. And that's what balancing conventional and non-conventional, balancing the needful self and the non-needful self tends to look like. It tends to look playful. It's kind of like a marriage where there might be an argument, but the argument uh, dissolves into uh, teasing and laughter. That's how this works. So she's a little self-deprecating. She says she's foolish. In an earlier poem, she said she was lazy. Um, and um, it's, it's fun. She's having a little fun here. No need for any method. That kind of relates to something I talked about with her first poem. Uh, 
she's so confident in her mastery of heaven and earth that she can go beyond method, is the way Beata Grant uh, puts it. Here within, there is neither existence nor non-existence, nor big self, nor small self, nor conventional refuge, nor unconventional refuge. Straight and tall, I sit, cutting off the path of sage and fool. Straight and tall, I sit. I think that's important because you still practice. You still practice hard. You sit straight and tall. Even if small self is here and you're okay with it, uh, nowhere in this talk am I saying that it's best to simply indulge your needs and uh, stop practicing or relax your practice. It is in practice that you cut off the path of sage and fool. And the war within is over when you cut off the path of sage and fool. We don't need to differentiate those things. The teacher is both sage and fool. And finally, the last line, since time immemorial to the present day, it has been so. This is how it is. Your needful self is Buddha. So enjoy the quiet at Hokyoji. Enjoy the quiet sitting by the winter window. Enjoy the comfort. Practice hard, but don't go to war with yourself. Let's not have Buddha fighting Buddha, okay? Let's end the war and uh, let's approach this with a lot of love because your small self is Buddha too. And that's uh, what I have to say this morning. And uh, I'm not going to take uh, questions today. Um, and uh, one reason for that is that it simplifies things uh, technically, uh, a lot of challenges um, uh, here technically. And I so much appreciate uh, the tech folks who are helping out both here at Hokioji and at MZMC. Um, and the other thing is that uh, traditionally we don't take a lot of questions on retreat because we like to be able to really kind of kind of hold the container uh, in that way. So, but before I turn it over to our esteemed Doan at MZMC, I'm going to make one announcement myself, which is that um, this Saturday evening uh, on the 30th of September, we're going to have an initiation at MZMC. And that means that 15 people who have been preparing for a long time are going to take uh, vows. They've been sewing uh, blue uh, rakasus, and they're going to be initiated. Uh, Tim, Ben, and I will each be initiating some folks. And uh, it's a lovely ceremony. It happens at 7 o'clock p.m. Uh, this Saturday evening, and you're invited. So thank you so much for your kind attention. And I will, uh, with the help of the tech folks, turn this over to our esteemed Doan at MZMC. And it looks like that's Raymond. Is that right? Yes, it is.